Yeah, Tom, Tom, our special guest, you know, you know special. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. You are joining us with the ugly one, Tom Logry, and me, the Cigar King. What's up, guys? Um, Tom, you want to introduce yourself to our viewers? Because they might not know you. Certainly. Um, I'm Tom Logry. I'm first the husband of Sarah, father of James. I'm the associate pastor at Rockland Community Church, and I'm also the founder and executive editor of Advent Christian Voices. Where is Rockland Community Church? That's Never a good question. Of- it's in North Situate, Rhode Island. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have had to answer that question probably before because that used to be actually in our name, but um, I'm, I'm also, I'm also the, the recording secretary on the executive council. Oh, I thought you were going to refer to yourself as the recording secretary of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, I mean, what does the recording secretary do uh, for the executive council? I'm just the clerk of the denomination. I take all the minutes. Okay. For, for executive council meetings at triennial session, I take the minutes. Um, so they, people throw out things on the table, like I want to do this. And then they make me figure out how it's supposed to be worded. So what you're saying is you're the most important person that's ever been on this podcast. Uh, I don't know. John Roller's is pretty important, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. That's close. Hey, now Tom is also the executive editor of Ever Christian Voices. He is the head guy over there. He and I have been kind of working together along with um, uh, uh, Chase Mendoza and not really working all that hard. Uh, Chase and I, uh, Tom's been doing all the work. But um, Tom, you've also been the one who's been putting our, um, our, our videos for you, stripped the audio from the videos and put it up on iTunes now. It's on the Ever Christian Voices website under blog or video podcast. And then you podcast. also have it under iTunes. And we're trying to figure out how to get it to more than just iTunes. Yeah, yeah. If anyone uh, has a particular application that they use to listen to podcasts, uh, I encourage you to leave a comment. Because um, in my experience, I only use iTunes because I've got an iPhone. But I realize that other people use other applications. So certainly, yeah, we want to make the con- content available to as many people as possible. Cool. Look what those, you, man. And for those who don't know, real quick, uh, Eric, Eric sort of given a great summary of all the things that Tom does. Um, how, the way that I know Tom is that he's uh, the one along with Eric who actually makes the show happen. In case it hasn't become uh, obvious by this point, I just kind of show up at the last minute to blab my mouth. But Tom and Eric do a lot behind the scenes, and Tom especially does a lot behind the scenes to make these things happen. So uh, huge appreciation to Tom. I just wanted to shout him out before we get into our subject today and make sure you guys know how important Tom is to uh, this podcast and the fact that it happens at all. Well, the best part about having Tom on here is now everybody is putting in what they prefer to use for podcast apps, which are wonderful. I like to use Spotify. I also use Stitcher and um, I use them for different reasons for different podcasts. And now we can all blame Tom when they don't show up on it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so thank you keep putting those uh down in the uh in the comments so we can give tom more work because he literally has nothing to do at his church um, <laughs> is that right tom 
Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, hey, uh, Tuesday, Luke, you started off with a game. and you, ha- you made me have to guess between John Calvin or some guy named Calvin Coolidge, never heard of him, uh, on specific quotes. And we decided that today we were going to do the same thing with Luther. So we're going to play a game. Let me bring it up here. We're going to play a game, Martin Luther or Martin Luther King. Now, I'm going to ask that both of you play the game, and you both have to give an answer. And whoever wins, I don't know. I haven't come up with anything. We didn't even come up, We didn't have time before coming on air because Luke uh, had to run to the potty uh, before, before it got on air. I, so we didn't I, even come up with anything. I feel pretty good about this. You know, I, I, I've read quite a bit of MLK. I went to his M- alma mater uh, for a class. So I'm feeling Tom, pretty Tom, strong. Tom and I will fig- figure out the, the, the right punishment and or reward behind the scenes. We'll sort that out with each other. No, but people need to know. You must have something. No, no, I don't. That's, uh, that's, that's between me and Tom. You guys are right. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. Um, so we're going to play this game, and I don't have anything to keep score. So I need the, the listeners, the viewers, to keep score at home and let me know who wins at the end. So I will just be telling you or giving you the question. So I'm going to put the, I'm going to read the question, and it's going to be scrolling in the bottom, okay? So you have to guess if it's MLK or Martin Luther, the reformer. And, uh, and folks in the comments section, play along. Have fun with us. Yes. Yeah, please do. Just don't Google it. Okay, don't. Yes, don't we're All right. Mm. So the function of education is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically. Intelligence plus character. That mm. is the goal of true education. Is it MLK or Martin Luther? I think it's MLK. MLK. You guys are both correct. Very good. It was MLK. I did right. just realize. I did just realize if I just copy Tom's answer every time, I can't lose. Yeah. No, you both can either win or lose. How about that? You have to hit three. It's three. You got to hit three. Okay. Same same rule as uh, on Tuesday. And I win if you both lose. That's that's my goal. Uh, peace is more important than all justice, and peace was not made for the sake of justice, but justice for the sake of peace. Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, you guys are both correct. Man, you guys stink. All right. <laughs> well, we only have to get one more, Tom, and then Eric. You're not, you are not only responsible for what you say, but also for what you do not say. I'm okay. I'm okay. Both <laughs> are wrong. Oh, oh man, that sound. Wow. Okay. Let the wife make the husband glad to come home. Let him make her sorry to see him leave. I'm going to go Martin Luther. Uh, Yeah, I'll go with Martin Luther, too. You both are correct. (laughs) So now now Eric has to shave his beard because we won. Yeah. Yeah. We have to get a new logo. We already established that we don't necessarily have the resources for that. Um, There never yet have been, nor are there now, too many good books. Which, I mean, we 
we all know that Luke wouldn't know that because he doesn't read any books, never mind good books. There's the never... Twilight series. Huh? Nothing. Just the Twilight series. You yeah. This is I'm I'm gonna go with MLK. Luther. Finally, you guys split on one. It's Martin Luther. Oh man. If if, if I miss zero. Uh, something something bad is going to happen to you. No, here's the thing, right? We have a guy over here on on the other side of me, Luke, who um he has pre- he hasn't even graduated high school. He has no college degree or anything. Oh and then over here we got Tom. He has two master's degrees. Not quite yet, Maybe but it's because he spent too much time at those liberal institutions that was a BC and BU I, and Harvard. I just attribute everything to MLK. <laughs> uh, social justice warriors. Um. We must use time creatively and the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. I want to pause here just to acknowledge what a great job you did picking these quotes, Eric, because every single one of these has befuddled me. I'm going to go with MLK. I said MLK too. It is MLK. Very good, guys. Very, very good. Well, then uh, you both won. No, I thought Luke won. Didn't he get one more? Because we split on one. And And this is where I had to edit out the music that Eric played. I got got two comments to make. Number one, I'll never be able to hear that song again without thinking of swinning. Swinning. And uh, And then number two, you know that you just played music on the podcast in the presence of the man who told you a week ago, don't play music on the podcast. <laughs> uh, that just shows you how well I listen, <laughs> I think. Uh, so so Tom kind of forgot that uh, we like to use funny names as our, um, as our line at the bottom. So we have the ugly one, uh, which is Luke. We have myself, the Cigar King, and we have Tom... Logry. So I don't know if you're trying to make fun of your your parents for naming you so, such an. I, I figured I was thinking of doing something funny, but I was like, you know, not everyone knows me, so they got to be able to make well, association with the well, name. Well, the great face. thing is that now people will know you because you're not funny. I love so. I love that. I love that Eric immediately assumes the reason that Tom coming on the show for the first time used his real name for people who don't know him is because. Tom intentionally chose not to be funny. I love that that's the assumption he makes. <laughs> well, it's not that he intentionally chose not to be funny. It's that Tom doesn't know how to be funny. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Tom. So with that, uh, oh, so so it would have been great if you would have put yourself as Tattoo Tommy because that's why I referred to you <laughs> as uh, in the tagline for when I posted this on Facebook. But um, Luke, why don't you tell us why you have the name The Ugly One? I was really hoping that you were going to catch that particular pop culture reference, but since you haven't, and I'm quite certain, certain that, uh, no offense intended, none of our current viewers will know the reference. I think I'll just continue in my, uh, in my quiet shame and I'll, I'll keep the reference to myself. It's a pop culture <laughs> reference, but those who don't get it don't need to know what it's referring to. The good, the bad, the ugly? Classic Western? No? No, no, it's 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 a whole lot crazier <laughs> than that. So, Tom, why don't you tell us why I affectionately refer to you as Tattoo Tommy? Because the Evan Christian Witness editor Justin Nash asked me to write 
an article uh, arguing for or against tattoos, the yes and the no, and just kind of leaving it like that. So um, after that article was published, I, I took some heat for uh, apparently being against tattoos. But I guess that's for you to decide because I, I, I think I argued both sides pretty well. Uh, well, I can confirm that you did not argue both sides very well. <laughs> but we should uh, – that's not available digitally, is it? Uh, if you – I think they post a PDF of the witness. Okay, so so we're going to try and get you a – get uh, for everyone a copy of that article. We'll post it in the, in the links below or in the comments below so that they can read it and they can make their own judgment and we'll talk about it next, next week. Because uh, it was interesting because we did talk a little bit about it, and I read the article, and from someone who has tattoos and thinks that there's nothing wrong with them, um, I certainly took it as Tom hates people with tattoos. Of course you, of course, of course you think they're okay. You're the cigar king. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> now, Eric, what's – um? obviously we uh, – Tom's just a, a fun – seems like a fun and a good guy, um, but you brought him on here for a reason, so why don't we introduce the subject of today? Yeah, so today we are going to be talking about political theology, which if you don't know what that is, uh, join the club because uh, Luke certainly does not. Um, I, I'm not certain that I do, uh, but Tom actually – one of the things I really do appreciate about Tom, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to pump him up here a little bit and, and not tear him down as usual, but Tom um, really has a heart for biblical ethics. Uh, I think Tom – I don't know if you've said this, Tom, but I've kind of had a picture of you being uh, our denomination's Russell Moore, um, you know, someone who who is grounded in the biblical ethic and and helps us think through uh, how do we live in society as Christ followers and and having Christ be truly be our King and not be subject to this world as as many of us have many have especially in evangelical circles sold their soul to their political parties. Um, but Tom has a real heart for trying to think politically and think ethically about, um, about things from a theological perspective. So with that in mind, Tom, what in your definition as a political theology or what is political theology? Um, so I guess to answer that question off the top, I would say that political theology is basically – it's the assumed theology of any political system. So um, it's really a study of um, societies and their governments and trying to understand what is the underlying theology that's guiding their policies and their practices. Um, now, what do you mean by their, their underlying theology? Because when we talk about theology, yeah. we're talking about the study of God. So are you telling mm -hmm. me that, 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 let's say, President Trump has a political theology? Um, so it's difficult, I think, to drill it down to a particular person, especially someone like Trump. Um, that's interesting. I don't know what we, uh, how I identify his political theology. Usually political theology works at the sociopolitical sort of level in terms of overarching philosophies that are guiding the policy direction of entire countries. And it's not 
Um, yeah, it's uh, so uh, to give you, I think I have to kind of just dive right into an example to try to clarify what I'm meaning when I'm talking about. Remember, you're, talking theology. People, you're talking to people who don't. And, and when I say talking to people, I mean like Luke and I who probably don't fully grasp what a political yeah. theology is. So um, please like Barney style it for us. Kindergarten style. Yeah. So if, so when you look at the American system, for instance, um, we are guided by the political philosophy of liberalism. And by that, I don't mean Democrat versus Republican. I mean, an overarching philosophy that characterizes actually both of those parties. So you have liberal progressives and you have liberal conservatives. Um, what they have in common is this notion that the ultimate and highest good is personal autonomy and freedom, meaning that there's no restraints on you doing whatever the heck you want to do. Now, obviously, whoa, whoa, that, whoa, whoa. that is no, no, that's libertarianism. No, well, that's, that's, that's a not conservatives or, or Democrat. No, that's part that is part of the liberal overarching li liberal philosophy. But both sides on the on the both the progressive wing and the conservative wing both have that as the end is really the liberation of the individual to return to what would um, be uh, there's this philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau who kind of characterized it as this sort of ideal freedom that we experience when we were just kind of brutish human creatures in nature. It's like they're trying to return to that sort of freedom. And the way that they go about that is different though. So in the conservative case, it's we want to make the market as free as possible. We want to conquer nature um, on the progressive end of things. It's we want to be free of all traditions. So no one can tell you what to do or who you have to be. And so the ultimate iteration of that you see um, with uh, the move to affirm transgenderism, I think, is because you're totally freed of the body. Um, so um, now, Tom, Tom yeah. can you see Matt's question? Yeah. It's not really a question, it's a statement. Yeah, so obviously he doesn't neglect that it's a study. It's really, I would say definitely that it's obviously you're studying the people who are making up that system because it is their ideas that are coming together to form um, those beliefs of um, that are kind of framing their, their view and understanding of the role in government in relationship to God. Um, so when you're talking about the American system with liberalism, um, the idea is that the ultimate good is my personal freedom and choice, as opposed to this idea of a common good and aspiring towards that. And what's kind of happened over time is this idea of, you know, this under God idea. So one nation under God. Obviously, that wasn't you know written on our coins originally, but the concept was there. Um, that's kind of shifted over time where our dependence has gone from God as the providential hand behind everything and instead has turned to the systems of government as liberating the individual. Um, now, Tom, let me, let me ask you a practical question here yeah. because 
Um, despite uh, Eric's little stabs at me earlier, which were quite funny, um, you, Eric and I, whether or not we're particularly bright, we are, I think, very analytical. Like we mm -hmm. like to think about this stuff. Um, but I think a lot of people, when they start to hear this really thorough philosophy, I think they sort of check out because they just sort of consider that the realm of the academic. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that having this discussion about political theology uh, is worth having for anyone? Well, my interest in it as a pastor is, is because I think it's important for us to make our people aware of the water that they're swimming in and the sort of influences that are present over their, their thinking. So as Americans, we have grown up in a culture that's very individualistic because it's been absolutely separated, saturated and the liberal mindset, which is the ultimate good is my individual freedom. Um, but it's a strange notion of freedom because the idea of freedom is just mere choice. Um, whereas if when you go back further, like to the Greeks, um, their understanding of freedom was that actually the only way that we can enjoy true liberty is by controlling the passions. Um, and helping to form the people of a society to be virtuous and good mem members of society. Um, and that, I mean, the complete opposite of that notion is basically libertarianism, that the government just exists to, <laughs> um, to just make it so people can do whatever the heck now, that they I, want to do. I, I want to make sure you're aware of something because I'm, I'm, all the things you're saying are interesting. And we're going to talk about them, but you do know that you're in the presence of two libertarians. Yeah, and okay. I would I would seriously push back against that as um, an Good. idea. Push back. I, push back. I, we need some pushback. I would push back against that as an ideology that Christians should subscribe to, um, because I think we need to take a more positive effort in ensuring that our neighbors are benefited. Um, in the common society that we we live in so the libertarian idea is basically this um the more freedom that we have um indirectly the benefit will accrue to all people um and while that's sometimes the case there's also been a lot of cases where that's not true um where you see crony capitalism running rampant and absolutely decimating small businesses um, so I'm not, I'm not advocating at all for social socialism, which is the far, far other end of that spectrum. Um, but I think we have to take a more positive interest in working for the common good. And that, and that's, and that's, and that's, wait, and that's, and that's, and that's biblically based because that's drawn out of the command for us to love one another, to love, okay. to love our neighbor as, as right. ourself. Great. Why do you hate um, America? That's all I'm going to say. So I'm just kidding. Um, so, so think about this, right? So from a libertarian perspective, and I'm not going to be a libertarian apologist. I do that, you know, as my second job, not this. And, uh, you know, I, I think of, you know, I agree with you that our purpose in, in life as Christians, as followers of Jesus, right, is to glorify God in making disciples, to, to love him above all other things, but also to love our neighbor. And, and the libertarian view doesn't negate the, the responsibility of loving your neighbor. It just shifts the importance 
uh, or, or, or the responsibility from government to the local church. And, and I, like, um, and, and I, probably like many others, you know, bemoan the fact that the church has really been slack in caring for widows and orphans, caring for the, those who are most vulnerable in our society. And we've handed that responsibility off to the government and the government is uh, secular. So the government mm-hmm. is going to uh, give all sorts of handouts and, help, and do the things that the church is supposed to do, but absent Jesus Christ. Whereas from a, liber- uh, from a libertarian perspective, a, a Christ-following libertarian, we'd say, well, let's pool all of our resources with our, with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, hold all things in common, and, and help them uh, as much as physically possible, uh, but it should be the church doing it. It should be in the name of Jesus Christ and not in the name of uh, America. Now, Eric, yeah, Eric, but there's... I have another question here. I want you to be able to respond to to. I'm sorry, Tom. I have another question here. I want you to be able to respond to Eric. But I think there's um before we start to get into the weeds here, there's sort of a, a more fundamental question I want to I want to ask you first, which is quite simply, um, given that uh, assuming that political theology does indeed matter, as you've made a, a compelling argument that it does. Um, do you think there actually is a place for us as pastors to speak politically? Because uh, I, I've, I definitely uh, have, for most of my life, been taught more so that it's actually very important that pastors remain apolitical because of the various sort of types of political people who might be in your congregation. Um, I, I mean, what, what is it that you're actually advocating here? But beyond just thinking about political theology, would you say that pastors should, to some degree, be political? Um, so if we're going to go to kind of my political pers- my, my perspective on how the church should relate to the state, I think what I would say is that, and this is, I mean, what applies to pastors actually applies to all Christians who mm-hmm. aren't in political office. I think our political responsibilities are are pretty are pretty limited um they're limited to our responsibilities to vote in um when when elections come around um and i think i think demonstrations can be warranted um but other than that our main task isn't to be taking up and trying to hash out policies unless you're an actual policy maker, then that's your job. And so like any other job, like you're to do that to the glory of God. Um, so, so what then, so that good, that's a great answer. And it really brings me to, I think the heart of my question, which is what then is it that um, a proper political theology will actually affect in a minute? We'll, we'll get down in the weeds and I'm sure mm-hmm. you, you'll be, we'll be able to have lots of great back and forth, but first I want to sort of establish what it is that you're aiming for. No, that's very good. Um, I think so in contrast, so what has happened in the American liberal order is that we've shifted away from we've we've basically made government everything. And the ultimate object is just pure individualistic sort of freedom. What I'd like to see us return is to um, and this is in opposition a little bit to a kind of a libertarian model is a sort of Christian democracy that is self-consciously recognizes that we are not the kingdom of God, that we fall far short of that, but our values are defined by those that are revealed in, in scripture. Um, so 
I'm trying to remember where to go from there based on your question. Um, in I, terms I, I of, guess, I guess, yeah, the, go the, ahead. Yeah, the, the question would be something like this. Um, in, in, a, in a like the perfect scenario where Eric and I hear everything you have to say and receive it today, um, what is it that we would come away from the conversation with if you were to meet your goals? Because obviously we want to think rightly, which mm -hmm. is where we begin and where obviously you're so good as a writer and as a thinker yourself. Um, but what I'm trying, here's the deal. In a minute, I want to get down in the weeds and start sort of hashing out some of the disagreements that we might have. Before we do, I want to be clear about what your goals are so that we don't get sidetracked too much debating things that maybe we disagree about, but that aren't yeah. relevant to your intentions. When do we, when do we ever try not to get sidetracked? <laughs> I thought that was just the nature of our program. So what I, I, think, would, I think when there's a guest here, it's important that we do okay, our best. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. So my whole, my whole perspective on the relationship between the ch church and the state is that as Christians, we need to recognize that we're political, politically responsible in a, democ in a democracy, but we also should be content um, if circumstances make it so that we are political outcasts. Um, so in, in that sense, then, um, I, I don't really think, I think the situations in which revolution is justified are pretty limited. Um, and so, and I think that pairs up well with what we see in the New Testament and throughout most of human history in that, um, you know, Paul's not telling pastors, hey, go run for Senate <laughs> kind, of, kind of thing. He's, he's saying, you know, submit to the authorities, um, you know, burnish a good reputation in the community and focus on moving forward with the gospel mission. Unfortunately, and I wrote an article on this on having Christian voices called the burden of democracy as Christians in America, we don't have the luxury of not worrying at all about politics. You know, he could, Paul couldn't lead the politics to Nero. Um, we've been given the task by God, I think based on our place in history to be politically involved. But I think, we have to recognize our places. Our particular calling is just mere citizens. It's pretty limited. So we shouldn't get so all consumed in, you know, the partisan back and forth. That's not justified and it's a distraction. Mm -hmm. Okay. That that's helpful. Now, having laid that groundwork, Eric, go ahead and fight with Tom. Well, I'm actually trying to pull up his article and I'm going to share it in the comments below. Um, so that people can take a look at it when they have a chance. But, um, right. you know, I think you hit on something that a lot of Christians don't uh, might struggle with hearing, which you had mentioned that you don't believe that uh, under many circumstances, Christians should um, move towards revolution, which is a, a popularly held belief in in some circles, uh, particularly those with with John MacArthur at the center. So I'd love for you to just share a little bit about why. Uh, you and J-Mac hate America. Well, I don't, I, I think, so there's this, you'll like, the, you'll like this guy, Eric. I think I shared it with you once, but there's this guy named Althusius, and I can't remember his, um, his first name, but his name is Althusius. That's A-L-T-H-U-S-I-U-S. Is this a modern guy? Uh, no, like from 16th century. Okay. Um, and he lived in England and what he kind of set forth was this, um, was this criteria by which 
revolution could be justified. And the basic idea was that rulers in relationship with the people are have entered into a sort of covenant. Um, and in fact, that this is something that's divinely ordered, the covenant that is shared between those who are governing and those who are citizens. Um, when circumstances arise that the governor um, takes up the role of a tyrant and begins not honoring his part of the covenant, um, it then becomes part of the people's responsibility to make sure that they are put aside. But the question is that, and this is the tough question is, is when is a governor truly a tyrant? Mm -hmm. um, just because you don't like their tax policy, <laughs> does that mean that they're necessarily a tyrant? Right, um, right, right, yeah. And I think in judging that you have to consider, you know, is the revolution worse than the rule of the governor himself? Would the consequences be more disastrous? Um, but I really appreciated um, his conception of it being ordered as a sort of government, uh, uh, as a sort of covenant. I think there's an analogy there between, you know, society as a whole and the governmental leaders. And there's an analogy there between that and the family in which, you know, you can imagine, you know, a father and a mother, they have a certain covenant to their children um, and to their spouse. But when they violate that in a very, you know, abusive or disastrous sort of way, it may um, justify divorce. And I know you guys had a whole thing, thing, thing on that. Um, but I think you would agree that there's certain extreme circumstances where that'd be justified, even while you would say it's not good. And I think in the same way, um, with political revolution, um, sometimes it's justified. Um, but I think on the whole, it's not, it's not good. Um, now, now I'll, I'll warn you, Tom, it, it's, it's a, one of the things I love about our show, uh, our, we have very involved chatters. So we've got a we've got a few yeah. questions that well, have been raised. Well, well, look, I wanna I kind of want to pivot towards a couple of those questions, but I first want to bring it to our own context, um, mm -hmm. you know, here in America, because there, um, you know, West brings up a good good question about Bonhoeffer and his political involvement, um, and Bonhoeffer is just, I mean, if you don't know who he is, look him up on Wikipedia. There's a great book by Eric Metaxas out there. Um, Bonhoeffer is just a treasure of the last century, um, great martyr. But, um, you know, uh, in the last election cycle in 2016, there within, say, evangelical circles, popular evangelical circles, there was a large back and forth between those who were ardent supporters of President Trump. And, and really the ones who are most vocal are the, the die in the wool, die in the wool Republicans who are who are supporting President Trump. And, and they would have done that no matter what. Then on the other side, you have very vocal individuals who are in popular evangelicalism who pushed back against President Trump when he was then candidate Trump. And I don't want to get into the conversation about whether or not pastors should be supporting uh, or, or, or Christians, whether or not they should have supported or continue to support President Trump. Um, that's not really the purpose of today. And, and really, I don't think we need to get into that here on this show. But the dialogue, for me at least, as a pastor and as a Christian, has been incredibly challenging, something that has really brought me to my knees in prayer uh, towards God for unity, because it seems like when you look at someone's reasoning for pushing back against President Trump, and they remain in the, 
popular evangelical circles that people label them and tear them down as liberals in disguise, as even um, referring to them well, as not even uh, being brothers. Of course, in, in according, according to Tom, we're all liberals in disguise. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, well, we, we all we are. Uh, honestly, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, you know, poli- you know, lefty leftists, right? And then you have people um, that who have not supported Trump, who've been ardent um, people who've disagreed with him and said, hey, you can't you can't agree with him at all and and be a Christian. So it's like it goes back and forth where we declare anathemas on people based on their political views, where it seems at least I, I, I consider myself a fairly level headed person. And I look at the arguments on both sides and I go, man, I totally understand why a good conservative and no Tom, you know this. Hardly anyone's a more conservative, uh, has more conservative theology than I do. But I totally understand why someone uh, would not support President Trump. But on the other side, I totally understand why a Christian would support President Trump. So how how can we navigate the political spectrum in our kind of little subculture in America? Well, I guess I would really first thing I'd like to encourage people to do is just to dig deeper. And I know it, it was, <laughs> it probably sounds like the Charlie Brown teacher womp, 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 when I was talking in the beginning about, about uh, philosophical liberalism. Are you in my head? But <laughs> you really need to dig in deeper because there's underlying philosophies there and assumptions that I think um, we really need to call into question as Christians. Like, is it really is what we should be pushing for as the greatest good. Um, should that really be just personal liberty or is there something else it, it, in doing that? Are we actually inculcating, you know, encouraging certain mindsets in the culture that um, have. Uh, now, Tom, Tom, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you here because Eric sort of had his bone to pick with you. This is where I think you and I come to our point of, Biggest disagreement so far. He didn't, even finish, start, he didn't even finish picking the bones that I picked with him. Well, hey, I, I, he's going to fight with me too, okay? Sorry. Uh, I fight with him all the time. So when, when you start talking, using phrases like, I, I, wanna, I don't want to mis, misrepresent you. I think you said something like um, when you were talking about consequences for the larger society of, um, of, of like a libertarian outlook. Is that generally correct? That, that that's what you were you were talking so about if I, the people uh, if, yeah if that's it, what you meant here's here's my objection um or at least a question and and i, I want to phrase it i want to phrase it rightly obviously we as a church should care about our society right i i, I think the I, I don't think we should take the approach of the essenes of let's lock ourselves in caves with our bibles and um wait till jesus comes that's clear oh, okay. i just ask one question has the political realm of what we've lived in in the last three or four years, maybe even longer, not caused you to at least think that, man, we should go by the Benedictine option and just lock ourselves away? I mean, I think that almost daily when I when I turn on the news. Well, well, I, I want time to answer that question, but I'm going to go first. Okay, let me get to my question. I don't um, even know what I'm answering anymore. Don't <laughs> uh, worry, right, we'll, we'll get we'll go back to Eric's. I want I want to I want to get to my thunder, here, here it is. Here it is. Um, I think Paul teaches very clearly that the primary responsibility of the church as far as moderating behavior is within the church. And I would go so far as to say it's our only responsibility for moderating behavior. 
Now, that is not to say that we should just necessarily, especially in a democracy, go laissez-faire to the society. I don't care how self-destructive you become. You do what you want. But at the same time, I hear you speaking in ways about how we need to essentially moderate the behavior of people outside the church. And I see no biblical grounds for that. Would you disagree? Well, I I would disagree because we are – this is going to sound funny, but because we live in a democracy in which we as citizens participate in the government, we do have that responsibility. Unlike those who lived in the first century who were not citizens of a democracy. And so, yes, we, as much as we dislike it because we're individualistic in this country, we are responsible for the behavior that is going on in this, in this country. Um, collectively speaking. Um, and that's because that we have the opportunity to affect policy um, changes through whom, through those who, whom we elect. Um, so if I can swivel back to what Eric was saying in terms of, you know, how do we navigate things? The, the basic prescription that I give is this, is that Christians, I think, should be solely concerned with voting according to Christian ideals um, and, and basically just to put it simply voting, vote your values. Um, unfortunately, we've allowed for the pragmatism that necessarily occurs um, in the actual business of politics. We've allowed it to drain down to us. So you understand, you know, when you're in Congress, you've got to sometimes accept a half, half a loaf to make some progress. Uh, and try to move your values forward. Um, The thing is, is that sort of compromise isn't supposed to happen at the level of the citizenry. We're supposed to be the idealists. We're supposed to be the ones that are saying, no, like we should be a country that, uh, that, that outlaws prostitute, is it prostitution? Um, That says that that's something that's both um, that's very corrosive to our neighbors, both those who are the prostitutes and those who are going to see them. Um, do I think that that's going to save them? No. Um, but that's a different question than what, as participants in the government, our role is to try to ensure peace and justice and, and flourishing, not salvation, obviously not salvation, but we're supposed to help try to um, promote all those things. Um, if I'm living, if I'm living in a, under a monarchy, um, I don't have any responsible responsibility on the governmental front. And so my sole concern is to promote those things through the church. I want to, I want to let Eric jump in here. Cause he just, he just reacted um, pretty, pretty violently to something you just said. I want to hear what he has to say. First off, not violently. I didn't throw anything. I just kind of made a voice or not a voice, a face. Which I can't control my, when I'm thinking when it's on my face. I just can't. I'm sorry. So I don't mean to disrespect you, Tom. Um, I, I prefer to do that in private, not public. But uh, I just think I, I think it's ludicrous to think that um, we are to try to conform our nation to our values when essentially um, we are a nation in which secular secularism. I can't even say the word, but you know, where we do have a separation of church and state, where it's one thing for me, if I'm a senator, and I believe that prostitution is wrong, you, you, this is your, you know, scenario, not mine, and I vote to outlaw prostitution, Mm -hmm. that's fine. 
But just like if someone was a Muslim, I would expect them to vote according to their worldview and their values. But also from a libertarian perspective, it's really no one's uh, responsibility to vote, um, to, to make me conform to their values because it's not government's responsibility. That's religion's responsibility. And really the government's responsibility is to protect everybody else's uh, rights. And you're not protecting someone's right if you are restricting it. Yeah, but I think, I think the issue is, is that, um, and this is really where political the theology emerges is, you know, in a, in a liberal democracy like ours, we we're under this mindset that we can enter into this civil square in which we can put aside all our particular viewpoints and just hash hash things out in kind of this sort of very rationalistic sort of like is this view from nowhere that any rational sort of person would arrive at these sort of positions where we can all operate by some fair rules and everyone's happy because they can do as they will. But the fact of the matter is, is I think that's really impossible because we're always going to be smuggling in our certain viewpoints on the world, just as it's impossible to read the Bible without having a certain lens through which you look. Um, and so what has happened in America is in the name of secular. So secularism. Um, you, you can hardly say the word. Either. Yeah. Secular. You're much smarter than I am. So <laughs> secularism isn't necessarily positively atheistic. It's just saying that we're not, it's this idea that we're not going to talk about God here. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, but the thing is, is that that whole notion that we can make that sort of separation from theology is that we don't need to talk about God here is it's it's, it's not true. Um, what, what's basically happened is, is that those who are patently religious, Christians, Muslims, Jews, they're, they're told you can't talk. You can't talk about your views about God. That's not fair game in a political discussion. And while that's been happening, all those who are coming from um these other, I guess you would call leftist or progressive positions, they're basically able to bring their whole worldview to bear, but it's not a religion. So, um, well, they, they get to they get to promote their secular humanist religion. And yeah, we, so, yeah. so Tommy, let me wait. Hold on, hold on. I, I need to push back a little bit more. Okay. Yeah. So, so Tommy, um, I think when we're looking at the what we're called to do as Christians, right? And, and we are to operate in the in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. But our main purpose is to glorify God by making disciples. Do we think it's more effective to make disciples by draconian laws, um, like you liberals like to do? I, that's not disciple making, though. That's not disciple. I said that. That's not disciple making. Hold on. Disciple making. Pause. I'm, Tom, I want you. I want you to let Eric finish his question because I can already tell it's a bad question. So let him finish it, and then you can, and then you can dismantle it. Um, so, it, it, what is mo what should be the greatest purview of the Christian trying to to create these draconian laws and, and um, enforce uh, religiosity uh, on people, or to simply share the gospel to our neighbors in our in our towns and our supermarkets in the public sphere? Um, what do you think is going to be more effective? More, more effective. I think I, more effective for what? Um, more I think, God and making disciples. 
I think both in both ways, participating on the political front and then also pursuing the mission of the church, both are valid ways of glorifying so how God. We, how we good good government, good government glorifies God. Well, um, it does not does not say right it does not say. Hold on, people. Eric, Eric, hold on. Let him let him answer the question. Then you can push back. Good good government glorifies God, but it does not save the the members of that society over which that government rules. Um, if you're talking about the individual Christian, especially the pastor, your occupation and vocation, your main occupation and vocation is as members of the body of Christ. And like I said earlier, I think our political responsibilities are pretty limited. Um, and that's why I don't like it when I see people who are just completely obsessed about politics and they're not a senator, they're not a governor. And instead, and they're, so they're putting all their energies towards that instead of discipling people in the local church, starting local ministries. Um, you know, if you're in local government, even, you know, I can understand maybe your concern, you know, making that kind of forefront of your concern, because that's part of your literal vocation. Um, so I don't, I just don't see it as, as an either or sort of thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm, let me let me jump in here because first I'm gonna uh, trash Eric a little bit and then I'll trash Tom. Yeah, I I I think that question, Eric, was a total false dichotomy because this is not this is not an either or question. I I appreciate your point, which I think was missed in the way you phrased the question, which is that one of those things is more important than the other. I think that preaching the gospel and making disciples is of greater value than political involvement. However, I don't think Tom's saying that they're of equal importance or that political involvement is more important. He's just saying it is important. Um, but I, but here's where I want to push back on Tom. And I'm going to um, go into the weeds a little bit here. So just follow with me for a minute and then I'll let you respond, Tom. So it, when, 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 I, when I say I'm a libertarian, I think uh, it's important to, be, to clarify because in the same way that someone says I'm a Democrat or Republican or any other political label, that doesn't actually tell you much about them because you can have such a wide uh, variance between different people in the, in the same group. When I say I'm a libertarian, um, what I mean uh, by, by that much of the time is that I'm in favor of localism and state power, right? So it's not just that I think the individual should have rights. It's that I think communities have rights to, mm -hmm. to govern themselves, this right of self-determination. Um, and I actually don't know where Eric stands on this stuff. We haven't gotten into the weeds on this. I suspect that Eric is quite a bit of a nationalist. Um, I, I know that it, politically he leans libertarian, but I would suspect that Eric actually uh, might agree with most people today that much of policy, even if it should be hands-off libertarian policy, should actually be from the national level. I could be wrong about that. He might correct me on that in a moment. Um, I take the view that as much as possible, uh, it's not just individual libertarianism, it's actually also a communal libertarianism. So for example, right now, let's go to the abortion issue that was mentioned earlier. Right now, there is one policy on abortion that applies across the country. I, I agree with you, Tom, that it would be better if the opposite um, policy were enforced across the country. But I think the best practical solution is actually to turn this particular issue over to the state so that at least in some places where Christians do have political influence, um, it will be uh, either illegal or restricted or something there. What I seem to hear you saying is that we need to take on the secular uh, tyranny 
with a with in a sense a a I'll, I'll soften the word a secular statism with a Christian statism where we need to battle the, their their power their political power with our political power. I take more of a position, and you can disagree and push back on me, but I take more of a position that I want to have political power in my town, county, state, and then as much as is constitutionally possible um, without violating the rights of other communities to govern themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but all that to say, uh, would you disagree with the idea that it's more important what is happening across the street from your church than what is happening across the country? I, w I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Actually, um, I'm, a, I'm a huge proponent um, and fan of uh, localism. And that's actually the conclusion, somewhat of the conclusion that um, this author, Patrick Deneen, he's a professor at Notre Dame University, comes to in his book entitled Why Liberalism Failed. And I encourage everyone to pick up that book. It's a great read. At, at the title, you think, oh, this is about Democrats. It's not. It's about the political liberalism that I've been talking about this whole time. It's not super over your head. It's very readable. Um, and basically, his his contention is, is that liberalism has failed as a philosophy, as a political philosophy, because it has succeeded. What it has done, basically, it has individuated everyone so much so that the local level, communities have completely broken down. And so instead, everything has switched over to the fe to the, the larger federal government. And so instead of looking towards local concerns, we're always looking to national concerns. Um, and I think that that's certainly really problematic. Mm -hmm. um, now, I want to I give Eric a chance to respond because I accused him of being a nationalist earlier. So let me just ask you straight up, Eric, are you um, a proponent of libertarianism everywhere or just where you live? Everywhere. Okay, so you are a nationalist. I'm right about that. So first off, let's be clear because nationalism does have a negative connotation to it. Okay, so um, I want to be careful because a lot of people think of nationalism and they think of racism. Um, whereas, uh, and, and they can, where in nationalism is kind of an extreme patriotism in which they believe that you are inevitable, like you by being an American, and particularly today it means a white American, that you are um, somehow better in, in, in some way than, than someone else. So the, who is it? The, who is a non-white American or, or whatever? So I'm clearly not that, okay? Let's, let's first make that clear distinction. But I do, I, I'm in favor of uh, as few laws as possible, but on the national level um, or the federal level, you have less laws than you might have in the local level because each, each um, layer is, is more unique the closer you get to the people. So, um, so that's that, Luke. Yeah. But I, I want to go to, to um, you know, you guys pretty much told me my question was stupid. And you're right. I did. I worded it on purpose that way because most people do think in, they think that um, everything is binary. That's how most people think, and they think it's either this or it's either that. So, um, what I've at least noticed, and I think you guys would agree. So please tell me if if you don't agree. But I think that because so many Christians have, and good, well-meaning Christians have been so involved politically, whether it's on social media or an actual national media or local media, that they've been so involved 
they have drowned out the gospel message with their political vehemence. Would you guys agree? Absolutely. So, so although, although philosophically, they are, it's not an either or, it's not a dichotomy. Um, in practice, because of maybe the fallenness of man in our own um, desire to create an idol of ourselves, we've created idols of politics and we've placed that above the gospel. So in essence, although theoretically, yeah, there is no dichotomy there. It's not politics or, or religion. We have created that dichotomy and rejected the faith, rejected the gospel by drowning it out with our politics. And I, I, I'd love to bring up here the fact that I think the further back um, that you go back in Advent Christian history, the more that you would find um, a lot of Advent Christian think, thinkers kind of resonating with, with everything that you just said, Eric. Um, a really famous uh, Advent Christian from the 19th century, I see Welcome, he lived during the Civil War and he was leading the movement among Advent Christians to refuse to fight in the Civil War and in some cases um, to not vote. And I just, I've selected a quote that I wanted to share with you, you all that I think kind of gets at, um, I, I don't agree with it entirely, but I think it kind of gets a little bit at what Eric is saying. Um, it says, um, they thought they were not of the world. And he's speaking um, of, of Christians in America. He says, they thought they were not of the world, even as Christ was not of the world. And they understood they were a separate people under Christ's law, the New Testament being their constitution. But all the while, there was another influence surrounding them, other interests seeking to gain their attention. The worldly stand, worldling standing on another basis is governed by other laws, moved by other motives, yet half Christianized by the gospel and the influences of Christianity and wishing to be called Christian without self-denial, without repentance and regeneration. He adopts some of its principles and maxims, adopts Christian titles and precepts and sacrifices a few pence for Christian enterprise. Thus, slowly and steadily, the process goes on of the blending, the interests, plans, thoughts, literature, pursuits, and purpose of the church and the state into one common brotherhood. Christian and worldling, chemically compounded, the real character of each class seemingly lost in the new composition, yet denominated by themselves Christian nations, churches, institutions, societies, etc. Thus, we find things in Christendom at the present time, and this is why the question comes up for consideration should Christians fight? Um, and a thing I, th I think is very poignant about his his perspective is that um, having, I mean, he was part of the Millerite movement. They had a very concrete sense of Christ's imminent return and a very concrete sense of that they were citizens of another kingdom. And unfortunately, that perspective, I think, has been lost over time, especially among evangelicals, but I'm, I'm speaking now here about Advent Christians. Um, in an article I wrote on ACV, it's called Recollecting an Advent Christian Political Theology. I trace that out a little bit. And we see that once you get into the mid 20th century, um, there's, this, uh, there's this Advent Christian author called C.V. Tenney. Um, and uh, he talks about sacrifice and equating one sacrificing themselves in a war to kind of this sort of Christian virtue. 
Um, and, and that was, that is just, and you can disagree or agree and you'd have to actually kind of read it for yourself. I think I encourage you to go to the article to kind of make your own judgment on it. But it's just interesting how far removed that perspective was from Welcome, who was like, yeah, we're not fighting in this war, even though it was a civil war. Um, so uh, where, where I disagree with him a little bit is that I, he, he, he kind of have a, has a separatist sort of vision of how Christians should act, interact with government. And in that way, he would line up with a thinker who's a great guy to read, um, Stanley Hauerwas, um, who kind of brings that Anabaptist perspective. So Anabaptists, we're talking about Mennonites, Amish, you know, they're removed from political participation. And he believes that's just how the church should um, act in society. Um, welcome would love that. I don't necessarily agree with that perspective. I think we have, we just like it or not, and I don't really like it necessarily. Um, we have a responsibility because we're citizens of this country and we have to deal with that. Um, and so we have to make political judgments. Messy business, but necessary. Um, yeah, thanks for that, Tom. And, and I mean, you do a tremendous job at really looking back at a lot of the uh, early authors of our denomination, how they can contribute to our, our trains of thought today. Uh, and just seeing the diversity of opinion can be really helpful. It's encouraging. Um, I think we should have, I think if the, if the church is operating rightly, there's probably a diversity of political theology, political yeah. understanding, uh, but the way we interact is going to be different. Hey, I, I don't know if you were going to point to this, Luke, um, but yeah, I want to deal with Brian's question real quick. Yeah, um, yeah. Let, let me just, let me just make one brief comment, which, uh, cause I want to, I want to credit Tom with something. I'm really glad you came on today, Tom, to talk about this. Cause I'll tell you one thing that just watching the comment section has really, um, uh, I, I feel like I'm realizing something as we're having this conversation, which is that even if I'm right that that um, enthusiastic political involvement, let's say for a moment that I'm right that enthusiastic political involvement for the sake of enacting policy is a bad idea for Christians, I do think we need to talk about this stuff more because uh, I, I can just see how eager some of these people are to have these discussions. And I will acknowledge I'm one of the the Christians who tries to take the approach of let's not talk about it at all for fear of, of division, but um, I, I think just the fact that you're coming on and having this conversation is awesome because I can see that people want to talk about this stuff and we shouldn't be afraid to. We the, the scriptures apply to, to should apply to everything we're doing, including our politics. So I really appreciate you coming on and raising the, the point of discussion. Eric, why don't you go ahead and address Brian? Yeah, so Brian asked the question. I'll put it up on the screen here. Um, yeah. It's kind of large. But uh, he says, why, why would you be so concerned to have legislation enacted? to prevent other people who may not be Christian have their choice on the matter of abortion taken uh, from them. I mean, we do live in a country in where there's copious amount of people who are not Christian, which is the reason for the separation of the two entities. So um, I, uh, I would say a couple of things here, right? So if we look back and, and we talked about this before, um, the reason that we have the law, right? So the 10, the Ten Commandments. That's what when we're talking in, in Christian terms, when we refer to the law. We're talking about the law of Moses. We're looking at particularly the Ten Commandments, and one of the purposes of the law is to restrain evil. How do we know what's evil? Well, God gives us a law and, and unveils to us what per, what what perfection looks like, what right and wrong look like, and one of those commandments is do not murder. Right, 
And as Christians, we look at uh, the, the womb and a child that is, that is in the womb as precious life. And we actually find in the scriptures that, you know, um, how God calls through his authors, um, calls the, the life in the womb life, in fact, the, the infant that is in the womb. So although you can uh, have the debate in the, sec the secularist do on when life begins, and I think the popular um, conservative Christian perspective is at conception, but if, um, if it's our responsibility to restrain evil and we are given what evil looks like by God through the Ten Commandments, then we do think it's the responsibility of government to restrain that evil. So um, that's why. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, do you guys have anything to add to that? I'll let Tom go first. I have a comment, but I want to let our guests answer the question. Yeah, I, th I think it's our, our responsibility because, um, again, because we are political, we are involved in the, in the government insofar as we are citizens of a democracy. Um, it is our responsibility to ensure that um, the good is promoted and the most basic good that ought to be preserved is um, a person's life. And so as a basic empirical fact, you know, a scientific fact, if you believe that the un unborn are, are persons, then their lives must be protected just as we would seek to protect any other person from a murderer or any other sort of unjust cause of death. Um, so, and, and that's the thing with the divorce, with the abortion issue, sometimes it's an empirical de debate, you know, is it a person, is it not a person? Um, but I think oftentimes, again, you have that hint of that liberal um, perspective. And I'm not talking, again, still not talking about Demo Democrat or Republican here. I'm just talking about this idea that the ultimate good is choice. Um, and I, I think there's cases in which we should say, no, actually choice is not the highest good. There's things that are higher than choice. Choice is, is a good. So I don't want to compel by the edge of a sword people to become Christian. Um, but at the same time, uh, I want to ensure that people aren't taking actions that are going to unnecessarily cause harm to other people. Yeah. Um, especially people who, who are innocent. You think about kids. There's all kinds of policy implications, you know, considering um, how kids could be harmed. Uh, I want to answer the question and, and also address a few other comments because I love the discussion that's going on here. Um, I think we need to acknowledge that when it comes to the issue of abortion, really the only question is whether or not that is a unique human life or a unique human person. I really think that's the only question um, because Brian, I'm sure you believe strongly the position that you do and I'm sure you could defend it, but I seriously doubt that you or any other person uh, from whatever group you're a part of would seriously argue for the legalization of murder. No rational person would do that. So really the only question in the abortion debate, we, we get you know, our, it's amazing in our politics how easy it is for us to lose sight of the actual disagreement because we end up arguing about all sorts of peripheral things that don't actually matter. Mm -hmm. um, the real question is, is that a unique human life? If you say no, then there's absolutely no reason to be uh, pro-life at all, at all. I mean, honestly, like until the point that you say that becomes a unique human life or a unique human being, there's no reason to take a pro-life stance. On the other hand, if it is, 
there is no justification for a pro-choice stance. So I understand this is a controversial issue. It's one that we should be willing to have real discussion about. Um, but let's be clear uh, about what the actual argument is. Is that a unique human being, a unique human life? If it is, there's no defense for a pro-choice position. If it's not, there's not really a defense for a pro-life position. So let's let's talk about what's actually at the heart of that issue when, when we discuss that. Hey, uh, let, me I, just, let me just say, hey, Brian, I do appreciate the question. And he, he points out there that, you know, he he's against abortion. He's just trying to spur the conversation. I know, Brian, I play hockey with him. He's on my uh, my hockey team. Uh, great dude, man. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Ovechkin still sucks. So how about that? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, he asked the question whether it's choice or free will. And I would say it's the free will that leads to the choice. Um, now, now from a reformed perspective, um, we would, we would say that your free will is bound to your nature. Um, you know, man does have free will to choose, uh, but you can condemn yourself based on that choice. Yeah. Also, also, I, I appreciate the a comment Tom made earlier that choice is not the ultimate good for the Christian. I think we, we can have a discussion about whether or not choice, there's a certain degree of a right that we have for choice. But choice, I, I wouldn't, even as a libertarian, I don't say that choice is the ultimate good. I don't think you can as a Christian. Mm -hmm. um, I want to I address some other comments, though. I'm a bit biased, but I really like Bob's remark talking about morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. And I would, I would say to you, Tom, I think there is a difference between, as Eric mentioned earlier, restraining evil and enforcing good. That I think there is a categorical difference there. Well, um, that's what that's the sort of distinction that I would make as well. So um, the thing is, is a person cannot be made virtuous through law, um, and in fact, a person cannot be made virtuous through their own moral efforts. The ultimate, o the only way that in which a person can ultimately become a truly virtuous person is through God putting his grace upon our hearts and transforming us um, through the work of Christ. Um, you see this in um, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he has this work dealing with true virtue. And it's interesting because you have Jonathan Edwards and someone like Thomas Aquinas, you know, a Catholic, um, and, Roman, but they, Catholic. Roman Catholic. They both, they, they meet together in agreement on, on the idea that true virtue can only occur insofar as God's grace has been infused into the human heart, and we actually love love God and become the sort of people that we're created to be. If you don't have that work of God upon your heart, you'll you'll always come up come up short. Um, but there are still good measures to take in place that can restrain evil, and I think also point people to the good. And I think. Um, there's much to be said, you know, when you think about the some of the circumstances that people have been drawn from in order to come to Christ, it's absolutely amazing. Um, but at the same time, it's like, could we help guide a society so that people aren't, you know, growing up in homes that are quite as divorced and broken and all and all, and all of that? Um, I'd, I'd like to think that we can help help to try to put some policies in place that would encourage that. That's not going to save them, um, but yeah. I, I, I'd hope it would put them in a better position to come to know Christ. Now, I, I want to address um, Glenn's comment, too, and I'm going to end it with a question for you, Eric, because I'll be really curious to hear your thoughts on this, because I think what Glenn is saying, a, a lot of people feel uh, a quiet Christian comes across as weak or accepting of things we obviously disagree with. Um, how, how 
Do we make our voice heard if we feel the need to push back on things we disagree with morally if we aren't vocal to those who believe polar opposite ideas? I mean, really, this is this is the the central question of the uh, you know American political life right now. Uh, it, it, it's a it's an excellent question. I guess uh, here's my question for you, Eric. Um, does the Christian actually? I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make a statement and then I'll let you respond. Okay. okay. I think based on what Paul says about in First Corinthians five about judging those who are inside the church, not those who are outside. I have absolutely nothing to say to a non-Christian living in sin. I have a lot to say to a Christian living in sin. How would you respond to that statement? <laughs> uh, besides the gospel, sorry, nothing yeah, yeah, yeah. besides the gospel. Well, I'd give them the gospel. I mean, so I, yeah. I would agree. You know, it, it's in the sense of, you know, again, not trying to legislate morality or anything like that, but my focus when someone, regardless of what the sin is, so, you know, someone already brought up the abortion thing. Like if someone's a non-Christian and got an abortion, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to share the gospel with them. And it's not until um, God convicts them of their sin and gives them faith that they'll believe in Christ. So, you know, I'm obviously going to tell them, hey, if I have the opportunity to share, this is why abortion is wrong. Murder is wrong. And this is why um, I expect a different, a different interaction than if I were having that with someone who is a Christian. If someone is in the church and gets an abortion, well, we are called to bring that person into, into um, to hold them accountable. In church discipline. Now, what that looks like, I'm not 100 sure. I haven't had to encounter that yet, but we'd have to think through it in that yeah. way. Now, um, now Tom, it, I want to let you respond because you might take a very different position than Eric and I on this. Do you think the Christian has something to say to a non-Christian living in sin? Um, I, I, you know, I, I think the only thing that comes to mind is what you would say with regard to the gospel is, which is just re repent. Um, I think you could, you could, if you were thinking about it, you know, I guess from the pol politically speaking, you could talk in practical terms saying, you know, what you're doing is not benefit is not going to benefit you, your children. Um, and I think the big question that more people need to consider is, um, instead of focusing just on actions and, you know, what kind of actions people are taking is what, what sort of people are we striving to be? And I think that's the thing about our culture is that we tend to focus more on what we can do in terms of choices instead of the sort of people that we're going to be. And I think getting back to that older notion of virtue and true freedom being true, true freedom being freed from the passions that control us uh, i th i think it's good to get at that and the thing is that's great about that is there because there's all kinds of political philosophy that talks about that is it links up really great i think with the true freedom which can only be known in christ because we're freed from the law of sin and death that reigns in the flesh and we live by the law of the spirit and so that's where true liberty can only be found it's only in christ yeah um but we can try to promote some a taste of that freedom, a taste of that common grace. I I think um, even so in I the wanna, public square. I, I'd like to do something now. Um, I, I'm going to read to you guys the first section of my church's constitution uh, because it's a fan. In my view, 
and I, I love my church and I, I, I think we've got a decent constitution. In my view, everything in, in this first section is amazing except the, the very last part. And I'm really I bet you I know what it says. I'm really curious to hear. Um, I bet you I know what it says. Oh, I, you know where I'm going already. Okay. Here's, here's what it says, Tom. The objectives of this church shall, to be, shall be to maintain the public worship of God according to the example and teaching of the Bible, to promote godliness and daily living among its members, to emphasize the message of prophecy, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting through Christ only, to promote an evangelistic and missionary spirit, and to labor for the salvation of the lost. And if it ended there, it would be the greatest part of any church constitution I've ever read. But let me read you that last phrase again with the last little bit. To labor for the salvation of the lost and the betterment of society. I think that last phrase has no place in a church constitution. Um, yeah, and, and church. Or, or let me let me make a more extreme statement. I think that the sentiment of that last phrase has no place in the Christian mission. The betterment of society. I, I know. I, I would disagree. Um, and and. I don't think it's, and this is the thing, it's, it's difficult because we, I think we do need to make some distinctions between the church as the body of Christ and then individual members of that body and the responsibilities that they have as human beings, because I think we are to glorify God through the exercise of good works. Um, and part of good works looks, you know, I think there's been some really, um, rich kind of descriptions talking about how we can glorify God through our vocations, you know, whether that's a truck driver, all this, that, or the other. And I think the same true is true when it comes to politics. And so I think individually, I think that, that that can be maintained. I, I wouldn't put that in a, in a church constitution, I, I think, I but I, I want to trash my church. It's a great church. It's a great I, constitution. I, but that sentiment, I think that sentiment bleeds through in a lot of the Christian mission today. I want to read you a quote that's actually um, um, it's uh, at the top of our Facebook page on Advent Christian Voices. It's probably my favorite Advent Christian quote. It's by A.C. Johnson. He says, what is true waiting for Christ? Does it rightly suggest a cessation or restraint of activity in Christian service that we should know? make no plans for future labor in the field? Is it an idle looking, watching, waiting? Far from this. When the church has most fervently looked for the Lord's return, she has been most diligent in the work of the vineyard. The scripture nowhere sanctions an idle watching or waiting for his coming. The waiting rather means that we have a great hope whose fruition will not come to pass in this age. A splendid ideal that can only be realized only after and by means of Christ's second advent. Therefore, we set our hope, hearts and hopes on that advent as the goal of promise, of joy and light. It means that we do not place our hope on what man can do for mankind or on what the church, civilization, or social service can do for the world, but only upon what Christ can and will do for the race by and following his second coming. Success to every worthy effort for world betterment, but above and beyond all this, we wait for the day of Christ, the day of redemption, of resurrection, and restoration. Um, Good. Yeah, I, I, I love it because... It, it's it's taking a stance where we're not against world betterment and in fact i think as christians we should we should be for that and it drives me nuts those who kind of come at this from you know uh, the tim lahaye kind of end times 
you know, mindset where, you know, just let the world burn to death, you know, like Jesus is coming back, we're going to be raptured. Like, no, like our ultimate hope is in Christ. And so we can't put our hope in government programs in terms of realizing the kingdom of God. And that's the sort of kind of liberal optimism that I think is so problematic. They think that as time goes on, that it's basically, it's this whole idea of being on the wrong side of history. And so as history unfolds, they, they believe that, well, this apparently reveals what is right. But especially now that they've taken this secular turn, there's nothing to back that up. Because if there's no God behind it all, who's to say that it's right just because, it, because it's happened in, in the course of human history? Um, as Christians, we recognize that there are things in history that are going to happen that are going to be great. And there's going to be things that happen that are horrible. But as the church, our main responsibility is preaching the gospel and pointing people to our to the ultimate hope of Christ's return and him making all things new. And that way, I think we have to underscore that Christianity is very political because what we're talking about is a kingdom. And what that basically recognizes is that the cure to all human ills is realized by a government, but it's not a government of this world. It's the government of Christ, the perfect king. And that's why when I want to stir up some controversy, I would say I'm a monarchist, you know? Um, <laughs> I don't, you know, democracy is a good hold, holdover just because- You've been I, watching the crown too much. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, when I think about democracy, I don't think it's a perfect system. Um, I think what the best part of democracy is that it gives us the best chance to um, promote the common good without having to shed blood. And that's what I see democracy as. Some people have a different vision of democracy. What I see democracy as is it's a stand in for war, because if we didn't have democracy, that's what you would have a whole lot more war. Well, we, we, we have we have a lot in common, then, because I would absolutely agree with you that uh, the, the sort of modern notion that uh, American democracy is, is innately Christian is simply false. There is no biblical defense of democracy. You can make a rational defense of it and say it's better than anything else. But I'm mm -hmm. totally in agreement with you that sort of this modern notion of, of the American idea of democracy is the Christian ideal is simply a lie. Can I say something real yeah. quick? Because you never answered Glenn's question. You you mentioned his question, but you never answered it. And then you guys keep talking about crap that no one cares about. So, um, can we can we get back to what I think is an incredibly important question, which is how Christians actually stand up for what they believe? How can mm. they say something specific in the political sphere or in their community, wherever that might be? Um, so how can they not be perceived as weak? Now, I would say this to Glenn. So I, I brought this question up because I wanted to answer it. Um, and I was waiting for one of you knuckleheads to, to, you know, to bring this up, although you did bring it up, but you just didn't answer it. So I'm sorry, Glenn. I'm the only one that is on this show that cares about you. Um, I just want you to know that. Now, Luke, aren't you his pastor? Am I yes. right? Okay. So I just want you to know that, Glenn. I care about you. Pastor Luke does not. So with that in mind... Um, Glenn, brother, I would say this. We have the responsibility to, to show backbone and, and to speak on, to our beliefs. In fact, um, I, I would pose this question to anybody in the audience. When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? That's the greatest thing that you can share. So if uh, really the, the greatest sin in your life might be that you're actually quite Christian when it comes to the gospel. But secondly, 
yes, absolutely stand up and say that there are certain things that God calls wrong. But I would say this, um, there are a great many famous pastors that have been told that they did something wrong and they acted like little babies. And what they've done is brought shame to the gospel. Perfect example, he's not a pastor, but he is a, uh, a prominent um, Christian and is the president of my alma mater, um, Jerry Falwell Jr. He acts like a complete rear end when it comes to, um, now I said before, support president trump that's great you know do that i i see i see people's reasons to support him and i say okay I, I i understand but the way that he's gone about it he he vilifies any christian as though they are no longer a christian if they don't support president trump that is that is ridiculous it is unchristian of him to say that and there are a number of alumni from from uh, liberty university who have pushed back against that including staff so there's a problem, but he's not the only one. And then we have guys like Russell Moore, who is Tom's um, idol. And Russell Moore is on the other side where, you know, he, ascended, he was a never Trumper um, back during the election. And I would say he never said anything that was characterized as unkind. He was unkind towards positions, or maybe he was critical of certain things that happened or, or um, that that President Trump participated earlier in his life. And he said, hey, I think that as Christians, we need to think about this critically. But he never anathematized President Trump, yeah. I can remember. But he, there was a great movement in the Southern Baptist Convention to remove him from his position in leading the ERLC, which is the Ethics, uh, Religion, and Liberty uh, Commission. Commission. Thanks, Tom. So I, I think you stand up for what you have to say, right? Like, like we have on this podcast, um, you know, you, you can share your beliefs and what you think is biblically based, what you what you're thinking through in a biblical worldview. But you don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to anathematize people. You don't have to get bent out of shape. So you look at people in the best possible light. We talked about this early on in our podcast, not today, but I mean, one of our early episodes is when you're communicating with someone and, and you and you different you have different opinions, you're debating. You want to restate their opinion, their belief in ways that they can affirm. So what you don't want yeah, to so, do- Yeah, so, so for example, when, when Tom says he disagrees slightly with Eric and Eric says, um, Tom hates America, that's a great example <laughs> of interpreting in the most basic way possible what, so continue on, just want to acknowledge you, you're exemplifying that. But well, Karen, and, but here, and, and I am, but it's also different when we're a couple of friends who are talking about this and we like to give each other a hard time. Yeah. I do not believe I do not believe that Tom uh, hates America. This is the only time I'll ever say that because every time after this, I will affirm what I've already put in the comments which is that he hates America. So, but because I'm having a good time with him, it's the same. I know Tom is okay with me having tattoos and another Christian having tattoos as well, but I just like to pick at him and say that he hates tattoos. Now, now so, Tom, we want, we want to be respectful of your time. So what time do you want to get out of here? Cause obviously there's, um, we, we, we could go on forever. I got to be done within the next, I would say, 20 minutes or so. But if you need to get going sooner, we want to make sure that we let you go on time. I would say I have about 15 more minutes. Okay. Yeah. Um, Eric, Eric could, we, could we do one more thing? I think it would be, I know you you responded in the comment section, but I think it would be, it would be worth responding to um, some, something that Brian said. 
about what about um, forgiveness after. I think that'd be worth saying, and then maybe we'll we'll close out with the convo- with the convocation, the catechism. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so Brian, well, why don't you ask the question? Yeah. Uh, so, Tom, maybe this is something that you can comment on as we come to a close here. Uh, Brian bringing up the fact that he's not an Evan Christian; he's a Catholic, and so they have uh, obviously a formal confession. <laughs> also, Brian smacking down Eric with the hockey trash talk. Uh, okay, the question is, uh, if you truly repent and go to confession, okay, you can be forgiven after you perform your penance. So these are some very Catholic ideas. He's, he's, yeah, he, he has yeah. a Catholic background. Yeah, but but from more of a, a, a Protestant perspective, is this something we believe, or is someone who's had an abortion while a part of the church just condemned to hell, period, blank, end of the issue? So I, from the Avid Christian perspective, there are some similarities and there's some differences. So one of the things that's necessary for salvation is repentance, is this grieving over sin, ter- confessing that we're a sinner and turning and turning from that um, and putting our faith in Christ for salvation, trusting in him rather than our own goodness. Now, in order to be saved, that doesn't mean that you have to go out and perform the good works until that actually counts. Um, God accepts us not on the basis of what we do, but what Christ has done for us and also what he's doing in us. Because the good news is, is that, you know, as we stand here today, none of us are perfect. We continue to make mistakes, but God's going to actually realize the righteousness of Christ in our lives completely at the day of his return. So that it's not going to be as though we're covered with a fake righteousness, but that we're going to actually truly be righteous. But it's not because of us. It's because of Jesus and him working in us and creating that righteousness in us. So the good news is, is that you can be saved even before you've gone and you know, performed penance. But what matters is, is that you've put your trust in Christ and your repentance is genuine. Your grieving over sin is genuine. Um, regarding someone who's committed an abortion, um, the same is true for them. If someone has committed an abortion that salvation is available salvation is available to anyone it's available to all sinners um there's you look at someone like the apostle paul now i'm not sure exactly of all his crimes but he 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 imprisoned christians and i think it was suggested that he he killed some he at least participated because he held the jackets for those who were stoning stephen um so you see someone even like paul who was at least complicit with murder and yet he was even saved and he was made an apostle uh, for the gospel. Um, so I think, I think we can rest assured that if someone has committed abortion, that's obviously a really tragic thing, but they can, they can be saved too. Mercy is available to all. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I, I agree with that. That's a great way to end the segment. Amen. But thank you for having me on the, on the show today. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to come back and talk a little bit more about this and some particularly Advent Christian stuff as well. It was a pleasure, man. And uh, I miss seeing you. We used to... We used to you too, bud. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. We'll, we'll catch you guys next time. All right. See ya. See ya.